Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm so glad you're here and I'm so grateful for your continued feedback and that so many of you are finding this podcast to be a great investment in yourself. That really is the goal after all. This week, we're continuing our special collaboration series with the Southern Cooterie. Over the past few weeks, I've showcased three different women, all founders, who not only embody the spirit of what makes the Southern Sea so special, but who also reinforce one of our core values here at She Said, She Said podcast, paying it forward. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you already know that my focus is on crowdsourcing some of the best advice and perspective on career and life, and then sharing it in a way that hopefully is helpful, inspiring, and motivating, but most of all, is about you. If you're joining me here at She Said, She Said podcast for the first time and you're looking to learn more about the Southern Cooterie, be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, episode 187, and also be sure to go back and check out the conversations in our collaborative series thus far. We've had fashion designer Leela Rose, business coach and author Sally Holder, and jewelry designer Mignon Gavigan. These women not only share incredible perspective, but they also bring to life the power of what happens when we collaborate and when we proactively seek inspiration and when we share what we know in an effort to empower someone else. That friend really is the magic of tapping into a network that helps support your goals and dreams. This week's guest builds on all that great advice and perspective, and she really embodies, I think in such a unique way, the concept of growing and evolving in our careers and lives. That, by the way, happens to be the theme of this year's collaboration with the Southern Sea. Molly Feening is the CEO of Charleston, South Carolina-based Red Clay Hot Sauce. Interestingly, she actually comes to the company not as a lifelong fan of hot sauce, but rather by way of Babyators, a baby sunglasses company that she co-founded with her husband and another couple, and that they grew to tremendous success. 
Now, these companies, Red Clay, Hot Sauce, and Babyators, are really nothing alike. And that's one of the aspects of Molly's story that I personally like so much, and I think you will too. It's a great reminder that sometimes the connective dots in our journeys aren't always obvious in the beginning, but actually they make a great deal of sense upon reflection after we've taken the leap. Now, there's a lot packed into this episode with Molly, and she is incredibly smart and thoughtful about how she thinks about her career journey. One of the topics we dig into is around developing and growing your network as you evolve and grow. If you're a regular listener of She Said, She Said podcast, you'll recall that we did a deep dive on this topic in episode 184. I also especially love how Molly talks about goal setting and why her approach is oriented more toward those little habits that you can adopt every single day to actually help you make progress as you close in on bigger goals. Now, because our focus at She Said, She Said podcast is around the things we can do to invest in ourselves, to build and grow our influence, I think Molly's perspective on making space every day to reflect and gain perspective is especially valuable. It's also what helps her ride out the chaos and uncertainty that comes with being an entrepreneur and now a CEO. But it also works no matter what your career or life journey may look like. Friend, I think you'll find much to love in this conversation. Plus, Molly shares her advice on which red clay hot sauce products are best for the most amazing spicy margarita. Now, personally, I suggest pairing her suggestions with Inspiro Tequila. If you missed Inspiro's founder, Mara Smith, who joined me in episode 179, I've included a link in the show notes, so be sure to check her out as well. But for now, here is my conversation with the fabulous Molly Feening. Molly, welcome to She Said, She Said. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so happy to have you and so excited to jump into your story. So first question, how does somebody who was originally interested in pursuing a career in military intelligence and technology <laughs> and who didn't, as I'm told, really like hot sauce, mm -hmm. end up running a hot sauce company? And that uh, is a great question. I still question it myself sometimes. Um, but I think the first and foremost love, really, um, you know, I my childhood dream was to either be a spy or a wizard, and I did not have magical powers, sadly. So was pursuing, you know, worked in computer science and, and technology during, studied it, and then worked after, after college and was waiting on clearance to do something more kind of confidential intelligence in DC. And that's when I reconnected with my husband, who is a fighter pilot for the Marine Corps. And he was up in DC for a, a weekend. And four months later, I was a military fiance in rural Mississippi. And for me, that was the moment that was the opportunity, you know, our love, this life together, I knew I could do whatever I wanted career wise, you know, at the right time, but did not know what if another love like that would, you know, ever come along. And so yeah. left the opportunity to join intelligence and um, moved to Mississippi. 
And I knew at that point we would be, you know, relocating every six to 18 months. I needed to do something that I could take with me work-wise um, because mm-hmm. there were not corporate ladders to, to, to sort of grow that I had done prior. So started investing in commercial real estate because that's my father's business and I knew it. Um, and it was great passive income, but not um, really my passion and my heart. And um, first, you know, my first product-based business is a company called Babyators, um, Children's Sunglasses, Aviator Sunglasses for Babies and Kids. And that's where I cut my teeth as sort of CEO and building a product-based business. But the way I ended up CEO of Red Clay um, is I literally was a, a client at the Oyster Bar where my partner, Chef Jeff Ryan, was executive chef. And the bartender said, you have to have this special hot sauce if you're ordering oysters. The, the, you know, our chef chose this specific pepper to pair with the oyster and barrel ages it. So it's balanced and delicious. And I tried it and turned to my husband. I'm like, this is the best thing I ever had. And I'm not even a hot sauce fan. This is the best thing I ever had. Two weeks later, we invested um, and we're silent money for four years. And in 2018, I stepped in as CEO to play an active role to scale it nationally. Amazing. Okay, let's back way, way up. <laughs> because <laughs> I have a Laura. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Lots and lots of questions. So Baby Aiders is such an interesting idea. I'd love for you to tell the story about why baby sunglasses. And also, I want to make sure we talk about the fact that these two businesses are incredibly different businesses. Yeah. You know, I think most people, when you think about serial entrepreneurs, oftentimes there's a there's a more obvious thread. Maybe there's a thread there, but it's not obvious to me, and I suspect people listening. Sure. So let's let's start with Babyators and how you got started there, and then let's talk about kind of the evolution in your entrepreneurship journey. Sure. So we started Babyators. My husband and I started it with another couple, two friends from college, Carolyn and Matthew Gard. They were both in Atlanta, uh, Emory Business School grads who had worked in consulting after business school and were flying all over the country and didn't really, you know, newly married, didn't get to spend that much time together. And we, we'd always talked about wanting to do something entrepreneurial together. And uh, when Ted was on a deployment or sort of what they call a debt in the military, which is a shorter training trip on, on the way to a deployment, the, the tradition is all the families wait outside on the flight line as the jets fly in and you, you, they, they, they taxi up to the family and then they pop the top of the jet and all the kids get to run up and see their moms and their dads. And it's a really sweet military moment tradition. And um, this particular day was very sunny. And um, I'm, I'm with, the, I, you know, we're newly married, no babies yet, but I'm looking at all the, my friends' kids who are squinting in the sky saying, I can't see the planes, you know, where's daddy, where's mommy? And we all had our sunglasses on. And the military actually issues aviators to the pilots to protect their eyes from the sky. And so I said this to my husband, how ironic it was that the aviators' kids, you know, didn't have um, aviators. And he said, well, we should make them and call them babyators. <laughs> and I did just that. When he said that, I started laughing when he said the name, super cute. Uh, giggled a little. And then we had mentioned it kind of over dinner a few weeks later to the guards um, on a little double date. And they said, being the consultants that they are, we're like, well, let's do a market analysis. Let's do a survey and see. That's a cute name. We could get a cute brand going, but what is the need in the market? And we spent a few months really interviewing a bunch of moms and dads about what they like about kids' sunglasses, what what they like about the price point, about the style, about the colorway, about the, the functionality. And we learned some really interesting things and used that survey data to build our brand. Um, and we relaunched about um, 
you know, kind of six or, six or nine months later with, with eight SKUs, two color, four colorways. Mm-hmm. And the company was a huge success, but at what point did you know you had really hit on something that was going to resonate with people? You know, kind of three pivotal moments growing in this business where it's like, okay, we've, we're on to something here. Um, the first was very, very early on. Um, and another, another another of our college friends was my husband's roommate, was the co-founder of Warby Parker, uh, ah. Gilboa. And he started... Um, Warby about a year and a half or two years ahead of us. And so we called him and asked him, you know, you're disrupting the optical industry. We're making baby shades very different. But what did you learn doing this that you could kind of help and give a little mm-hmm. tip or, or sort of advice? And he suggested, you know, all you put all your marketing dollars and make sure there is paid, paid PR, earned media um, to get the buzz of the brand out there. Otherwise, no one's going to find out about how great it is. Um, and so we really, we, we made sure we had that PR partner. Um, and in a few weeks, maybe a month or two, we got, um, a big hit in Newsweek when it used to be a magazine. It was one of the last Mm -hmm. issues, um, where they listed us in a roundup of most essentials for the summer for your kid. Um, and after that, we got a, a lot of stores reaching out, um, to buy us. Um, and so we pivoted from this direct to consumer only model to, oh, these boutiques all over the country want to pick up baby eaters. That allowed us to think about the business a little differently. And then I, we were pregnant when we launched um, our Sawyer, Sawyer, our son is now 10. Um, and our, I remember after we had him um, in the middle of the night, uh, I couldn't get back to bed at the hospital and I was reading Us Weekly. And turned to a spread of Mariah Carey's twins in the nursery. One of, and the boy twin is sitting up in his nursery with a plush guitar, wearing our babyators, and it oh my gosh, the shades in the magazine. And I started just jumping <laughs> down and screaming on the hospital bed. My husband's in the air mattress next to me, and is like, "What happened to the baby? What's going on?" And I'm like, "We're in Us Weekly. We're in Us Weekly." And that, to me, as somebody who grew up reading Us Weekly, you know, my my fun little vice and on air, airplanes and stuff like that, it was so fun. And I was like, "We've made it. We have. Made it. We are in Us Weekly. I'm done. I'm tired." So that that was a fun PR moment for sure. Were you ready for that particular moment? I mean, at the point in which you guys kind of exploded, had you? prepared? I mean, this may sound like a strange question, but had you prepared for that? Or did you know this moment was coming? You sort of, I mean, obviously you hope for that, but were you ready? And did it, were you able to keep pace with the growth? I think is the question I'm trying to ask. Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, my partners, you know, and Carolyn is the really sort of function as the COO and still does to this day, but the team really runs the business day to day. But she early days was all ops. She's very wonderfully kind of conservative and thoughtful. And, and so stock really has never been a big pain point for us. It might get delayed in customs or we might kind of struggle a little bit, but you know, for us, you know, we've always had something to sell and and because this, our SKU sizes are so few, there's zero to two and three to five years at the time, you know, we never had like a big out of stock issue per se. I remember though, and I think one of the things I've learned in entrepreneurship now doing this for 11 years, you never are ever prepared, right? No one is ever prepared. <laughs> and and if you pretend, people who pretend think they're prepared are not prepared or they're pretending. Um, and, and then they have COVID, exactly. right? <laughs> and so you just, basically, I think about, you know, another really pivotal moment in the business. The following year, we ended up on Ellen for the Mother's Day giveaway, which was our biggest 
first biggest day of, you know, of the history, you know, baby eaters. And that was probably a year, a year and a half in. And um, she, Nick Cannon, Mariah Carey's husband, gets on, up and is being interviewed. And, he, you know, she's like, so I hear your your child likes baby sunglasses. And he's like, yeah, these cool ones, they're called baby eaters. She's like, well, they're safe and they're awesome and durable and super cute. We're going to give all the moms here in the room, you know, a selection of baby eaters. And then cuts to commercial and everyone's screaming, yay, this is so fun. And instantly our site shuts down. Because <laughs> 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 everyone, the cuts to commercial, all of America and the East Coast goes to babyators.com and it shuts down. And so we're watching just like, uh, you know, everyone going to a broken link and we're calling each other and we're crying and we're screaming and we don't know what's happening. We're calling our, at that point it was pre-Shopify. So our server, the site, you know, the, the, the data server that helped the site was a different person than the data who made the site. It was all very, you know, sort of segregated into these different tech pieces. Um, and it was the worst, um, <laughs> but also the best. It was the best attempt the worst time. And then we got the site back up maybe 15 minutes later, only to have it crash the following hour on the different time zone central when she announced it. And then it crashed four times that day for every time Ellen aired the show. And we just at that point started laughing and like, we were like, okay, this is wonderful. This is also exactly like the perils of small business as you, as you yeah. grow in scale. So what did you do as a result of that? How did you change the, the, the platform and the technology behind it to sort of anticipate something like that happening in the future? You know, anytime we knew about a TV hit in advance, we really, you know, gave ample notice to the data server team um, beforehand and made sure we had reserved lots of kind of storage space for the site. So kind of prepping on the infrastructure tech side for sure. Um, I would say, you know, since then with modern technologies, like things like Shopify, which is one, you know, kind of out of the box solution that, that hosts the site and, and the server space, but also does the checkout and kind of the payment payment processing for you and all of that. Um, that has sort of made that issue a little less relevant because they have all the server space that they can kind of scale up and down mm -hmm. and realign as needed. But certainly I would recommend if you do know you're going to be on a major TV program like, you know, Today's Show or Good Morning America, there's a lot of eyeballs, giving, giving your your developer a heads up in advance so that they can shore up what they need to shore up to make sure the site stays alive. Yeah. How valuable was your background in or your educational background, at least in technology? Because I don't, I'm not aware you didn't necessarily work in technology after college, you were planning to and your life took a different pivot. But how valuable was that background in terms of that piece of the business? Yeah, and I did. So when I graduated Harvard, I went to IBM for a year and worked in the global services division doing tech strategy consulting and then went back to Harvard to work at a think tank for two years. So I did three years of actual tech job work, yeah. but, but I would say for that and also undergraduate, you know, I studied engineering and computer science. Um, Harvard was very smart at not focusing so much on becoming masters of the specific language, knowing that whatever language you learn in coding is probably going to be obsolete pretty quickly as things evolve, but instead more about thinking the, the algorithmic problem solving pseudocode mindset. Um, where you say, okay, we have this big pyramid we want to build. 
how do you break it down into piece by piece and then stack the pieces in such a way that it builds up to what you need to build. Um, and, and so for me, entrepreneurship and growing a business is the same thing. If you think, mm. look at um, a $10 million business or a $50 million business, you think, I could never do that. How did they do that? And if you look at a big pyramid, how did they build that? But if you think about breaking it down into bite-sized chunks, what is the next best step you can take today to start building that, to moving towards, in that direction, towards your, your big, big business goal, whether it is a dollar amount, whether it is a number of stores, whether it is a certain press moment you want to have, and doing the work, showing up every day, perseverance and consistency over time, that's really kind of what I learned from tech, um, studying tech at Harvard, uh, the, the, the problem-solving mentality more than any one specific technical skill. I love that. I mean, it's so applicable no matter which direction you're ultimately going in. That's incredibly good advice. Okay. One thing I'd love to go back to is you started Baby Eaters with another couple. So there were four of you essentially who were in decision-making roles. You were partners. Talk about um, advice you have for picking good partners. It is so important. It's going into business with somebody, having a business partner is as important as a marriage. It is a business marriage. So choosing somebody, number one, that you work well with, you know, your energy vibes with them. Number two, your skill sets complement their skill sets. You, if you both are super, you know, brand focused and love marketing and love, love, PR, but don't like the financial side or don't like the up side, you both are going to be constantly kind of fighting over what you energizes you and also mm-hmm. kind of fighting to push off the de- the things that de-energize you. So finding a partner who does something or enjoys a different part of the business where you can each have kind of your own domain has been very helpful on both of my businesses, I would say. Um, and then in addition to that, you want to have a lawyer draft a really elaborate, thoughtful operating agreement, um, which is basically like a prenuptial agreement uh, for, for a business. And it says, in this case, this is what we agree to. In the case we need to raise money, this is what we agree to. In the case we need to, one person gives money and the other person doesn't, this is what we agree to. In the case we both want to sell, in the case one person wants to sell and the one person doesn't. In the case, you know, and, and a lawyer can ask all those different questions that you might not even think of now when it's the early days honeymoon period. We have a great idea. We have a great brand name. I love our website. Like those are the, still these like goo goo gaga honeymoon days, but you need to think about how you will handle yourselves together, how you agree to handle yourselves when the rainy days come, because they will come at some point. Um, and so those, I would say those three things, you know, someone, someone you enjoy spending time with, cause you're going to know them like family, like siblings. Um, you're going to spend lots of time with them. Someone you compliment your skill sets and then operating agreement. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about red clay hot sauce and the sort of connective tissue <laughs> to the extent that there is any between baby aiders and red clay. So let's talk about the pivot that you made from baby aiders. And you're still involved in as, as an investor with baby aiders, yes? Yes. So the four of us still own it. Um, I'm on, I want to say maybe 95% or 94%. We've given a small percentage to sort of the vesting pool for the for board, board advisors and, and, and um, team members and such. Um, mm-hmm. But I would... And we've done the same thing with Red Clay. I really believe in like wanting to give your team 
um, a piece of the pie. So it feels like they have an owner's mindset and a commitment to the journey and excitement to to grow and scale. And the, if the goal is to sell, eventually sell the business. Um, I, but we've never taken outside capital with Aviators. Um, and so we, we, at this point, kind of advise, the team runs it day to day. And I, I probably spend a few hours a month on it max. My partners might spend a few more hours than I do um, at this point, but it's very much, all four of us are more advisory co-CEOs than active in the day to day. So making the pivot, where did the opportunity come for Red Clay Hot Sauce? And when did you sort of know, okay, this is what I need to do next? Because it's not, for most people looking at this, it's not necessarily a logical progression, (laughs) or maybe it is. (laughs) No, I I mean, there are similarities, but they are very different categories. And I had to learn grocery as a business and food product as a business from the ground up in the way I had to learn about building baby eaters from the ground up where I, I want to say probably eight years into baby eaters. Um, we were a $6 million business at that point. Um, the, you know, it's a really strong team. And I found myself, first of all, missing those early days, the newborn business days. What is the logo? What is the color palette? What is the, the font selection? Just big picture stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Also I found I was, getting in the weeds where I really wanted my team to be able to run, you know? So looking over my, my, my team members caption of the Instagram post that day, what, what's, been, what's the caption? Things I don't need to be spending my time on things that right. makes them feel bad that I'm, you know, wanting to be involved because they want to be able to go do their job without me checking in. And I, I noticed that about myself um, where I, I wanted to be back involved and I, but we had this great team doing it. And so in addition to that, I read an article about Sir Kensington's ketchup and how it sold for an insane multiple. I, it's a private number, so these are not exact. I don't know what the exact figures, but people say 17-ish, 18-ish million for 140-ish million. Um, so on 17 million gross revenue, it sold to Unilever for 140 million. That is a multiple that we would never see in kids retail. And I called my friend in condiments who owns a keto paleo sauce company. And I was like, is this legit? And he's like, yes, you have these big behemoth Kraft Heinz, Kellogg, McCormick. Um, They don't internally R&D. The way they expand new product category is through acquisition. So they pay a frothy multiple. And I was like, well, I'm spending my time in the wrong category, <laughs> if that is the case. Um, and also, I saw what, what Sir Kensington's was to ketchup, old school ketchup brands, thoughtfully crafted, higher quality ingredients, beautiful branding, millennial consumer. Red Clay was building locally the same exact attributes, unique differentiators in hot sauce. And so nice. Jeff, my partner, had sort of built this beautiful craft hot sauce, well-loved Charleston favorite. And it was plateauing at about 70,000 in revenue um, as like on the right restaurant tables and some loyal fans mm-hmm. locally. Um, but the, the website was not particularly functional. And, uh, and, and it was, you were seeing kind of where that opportunity is like the local Charleston hot sauce kind of was standing off. And so I drove up to Greenville where he was living at the time and pitched him on st- sort of helping scale it nationally. And he was like, great, let's do this. And um, I took a little more ownership and rebranded the website, rebranded the labeling. Um, and three or four months later, we you know, relaunched Red Clay to, to scale it to the rest of the country. Amazing. That's amazing. Okay, let's talk specifically about the attributes of Red Clay Hot Sauce, because there are some things that are very unique about 
the processing compared to other types of hot sauces. Mm -hmm. I am certainly not an expert on hot sauce, <laughs> at it. least until doing the research <laughs> for this interview. <laughs> so you can quiz me if you'd like, but I'd rather you tell us yeah. about what makes red clay hot sauce so unique. So I think first and foremost, it being created by a fine dining chef. So my partner, my partner was, if you guys, you know, Charleston restaurants, he was chef at Fig, chef at The Ordinary, and chef at Leon's um, Oyster Bar. He's done stage. He's at Blue Hillstone Bar. So he comes from very James Beard restaurants, fine dining. And when he, when he set out to make a beautiful hot sauce to pair with the local gorgeous oyster here in Charleston, and oyster is a big part of our culinary um, lifestyle and ecosystem here. He chose a pepper that wouldn't overpower the, and he thought, you know, was thoughtful about, okay, how do I take this beautiful Fresno pepper? And I um, use old school cooking techniques to honor it. And so, you know, you think about that first batch of olive oil, extra virgin olive oil um, from Italy or Spain or Greece, it's cold pressed, right? They don't heat the olives because when, you know, they do, you lose the, the flavor and the nuance um, right. and then the health benefits as well. And so he cold pressed our peppers um, and aged them in bourbon barrels, the way you would age grapes in oak barrels for that beautiful kind of fermented notes that are a little kind of more funky and umami flavor profile and um, complex flavor than just a one note, this hot, and then it disappears. And so our hot sauce is, is the only real living fermented hot sauce on the grocery shelf right now. Um, so cold pressed and fermented. And then as a result though, it's, it's just all about first and foremost, just a, a beautiful balanced sauce. And so as a chef, he thinks about bringing together sweet and salty and spice and heat and umami, everything we make kind of brings together all those sort of chef tasting notes into one product. Um, and so it is, it elevates what you're eating and it doesn't overpower it and just make it taste, taste like heat or taste like you think about Cholula. Like I love Cholula, but whatever you put on you Cholula on, it just tastes like Cholula, you know? And so mm -hmm. this, you know, when we, when we get great press, um, you know, you've got food and wine magazine saying this is Tabasco of the 21st century or, or New York times reviewed it and said, I use this more as an ingredient in my cooking even than an after the fact condiment. So when I'm making stews or chilies, I, I use it to add depth of flavor and a little bit of peat and a little bit of umami. And then yes, I might drizzle some on after, but, but it's, it's really sort of a pantry staple than just an, a condiment at, after the end of uh, the dish is made. Yeah. Another piece or another product in your business line is the honey that grew as sort of the almost a byproduct or an after product of the hot sauce so maybe talk a little bit about that yeah so after we ferment and press the press the juice through you're left with this fermented pepper mash that's this beautiful six to eight week fermented old mash and you know sustainability is a core value of red clays um and so we didn't want to waste it um and so we we tried to explore ways to um, utilize this byproduct of the sauce uh, because it was a beautiful food product in and of itself. And so we infuse it with apple cider vinegar. We, we, we mix it with apple cider vinegar and infuse it, fold it into raw wildflower honey. And that's how we came up with our spicy honeys. And then we dehydrate it down and put it into seasonings and spice blends. And that's how we came up with our drink salts and our spice, our spices, but hot honey without kind of in parallel with all this has become this 
huge growing food trend. Um, and Mike's Hot Honey is sort of the first in the space. It's a, from a, a Brooklyn pizza joint. And um, for him, it's about just sort of the focus on pizza as an element and heat. And, you know, we come in as this more elevated second second opportunity option um, right behind the crest, the crest of the wave that's like, all right, we're sourcing beautiful wildflower honey and we're keeping it raw and it might be a little more expensive, but it's this delicious kind of, you can use it, you know, as, as an ingredient in, in beautiful cooking um, and not just something that's going to be like, bam, like my food is, you know, very hot now. Yeah. Which of your products of the salts and the honeys are your favorite for the for the spicy margarita? Me being a good Texas girl, <laughs> at least a native Texas girl. What's your what's your favorite sort of condiment for the spicy margarita? I I mean, I love the spicy margarita. So we have our our spicy marg salt is, um, uh, you know, as opposed to you think about like Prior to Red Clay doing these premium drink salts, what was out there in the market was that, that the sombrero that's just salt, right? Um, right? And you have certain restaurants doing kind of more interesting drink salts in-house, but we were the first to sort of bring one to market, which was really exciting to actually create a category. You think about this beautiful tequila or mezcal, people are doing small batch, really elevated top shelf liquor. Um, now, then you put just, you don't put like a, a crappy margarita mix or crappy salts with that. You know, you get something right. like fresh lime juice and do something, maybe a little agave um, and then a beautiful drink rim. So we launched that during COVID and it's in within weeks became our number one bestseller on our website and still is today. So we're, we're really excited about, um, about the Mark salt. I also really love our spicy, everything, but the bagel salt, I probably use that one the most in my cooking. Um, it's got like poppy seeds and sesame seeds and garlic and, um, obviously our, you know, our, our habanero pepper. Um, but that is a really wonderful kind of functional seasoning blend. Um, that's, really savory and delicious. Um, I'll, I'll use it as like a crust for salmon. I'll use it in, over eggs or avocado toast or guacamole or something like that. Okay. That sounds amazing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely amazing. I know everybody's mouth is watering at this point. Um, so let's talk about maybe the concept of building and sustaining your network because this conversation, Molly, as you know, is part of our collaborative series with the Southern Cooterie. Um, you and I are big, big fans of that group and of the amazing women, the business leaders and founders who make up that organization. But let's talk about um, maybe advice that you have for building and growing your network, especially as you grow and evolve in your career. And as you surround yourself with a great, you know, ride or die team, but sometimes the people that have been with you since the very beginning may or may not be the people that you need to grow, especially if you, like in your case, are pivoting from one industry sector, if you will, mm -hmm. to another. Totally. So maybe talk about advice for that and keeping your network a vibrant, growing thing along with you. It's so important. I feel like, you know, it's very isolating being an entrepreneur, especially in early days when it might be just you or you and your partner um, and you're working crazy hours and no one really gets it except for other entrepreneurs, right? And so I believe you need really kind of two networks. I found personally, um, you need a network of people in it with you. You need the people who are like at the same stage in, in your business, maybe in your category and maybe into complimenting or a different category, but somebody who you can call and 
and ask them thoughts on what's the best mail server to use or ask them thoughts on what what the fulfillment center is that they recommend you know just things like that so the day-to-day functioning of your business also to just call and cry or call mm-hmm. and be like i am so tired and they are telling you to take a take a wednesday off like you you <laughs> need that those people to lean on who get it um and so uh, building kind of a group of people whether it's formally like you all kind of connect maybe in person or virtually, or it's just you have your own friends that you individually lean on. Um, You also, I recommend, need a network of advisors, people who have done this before. So maybe they're three, five years ahead of you, or maybe they've already sold the business and, you know, and, and you need to ask them what happens in six months or, okay, I need to go raise capital. Do you have recommendations on people, you know, who have invested in my types of business before? Because your entrepreneurial peer friend, might are not that might not be as far along and know those answers. So I really re- believe in stoking the sort of the fires of two networks, the kind of advisory mm-hmm. network and then a peer network. Um, and and even you know at some point as a business grows and you're hiring team and now it's it's a team and not just you, the entrepreneur, you step into a CEO. We transition to the CEO role, and that is a very different role than entrepreneur. That is about people management and, and supporting mm. your team, and not and not as much about the doing of the day to day. And most entrepreneurs, I know I did, struggle with that because we're, we we are entrepreneurs because we like getting our hands dirty, and you have to step away from the work and let your team do it. Um, and that is a growing pain. And so there, then there's a point where you need kind of a network of people who are CEOs, and you're talking about things like HR. And how to hire somebody and how to fire somebody and, you know, what percentage of stock to give them for this role or well, what's the salary? And it's different questions. Um, and your entrepreneurial friends may or may not have gone into that role or, or not. So having a CEO network when you are, um, when you, you know, step into that CEO seat. Yeah. Do you, and this may be an unfair question, but I'm, I'm going to ask you anyway, because I'm curious, do you see yourself more as an entrepreneur or a CEO, or, or maybe as you think about your strengths, do you see your strengths as being stronger as an entrepreneur or stronger as a CEO? That is a great question. Um, I certainly, I think everything is about education, right? I think, you know, when you start, when you have an idea and you're at the, at the start, starting line of a business, nobody knows anything. Right. And then as an entrepreneur, you build you build the skill sets and you you learn and you ask questions and you develop a comfort level um, as uh, as an entrepreneur. And then you step into CEO seat and you know nothing and you have to then educate yourself and read books and 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 make mistakes and hit the growing pains and get feedback and constructively apply that feedback. and so for me, I'm, I've been an entrepreneur longer, so I'm probably better at that. You know, I've, you know, was co-CEO for babe, with baby eaters, you know, for, for that time, but, but really, you know, all four of us just sort of played these entrepreneurial characters where there wasn't like one decision maker. And with Red Clay, I'm the CEO and I can't rely, you know, the team certainly helps, but, but, and Jeff is, you know, a wonderful partner, but it's sort of like, he'll say, you know, what do you want? What's your decision here? Um, and it's, I need to rely and stand in my own power. And so that, um, I identify as a CEO now more mm-hmm. than I do as an entrepreneur, but I would say I'm probably, I have more experience as an entrepreneur and I am still 
a baby CEO. You know, our, our business with Red Clay, we just finished 2 million year in the for gross revenue for 2021. And our goal is four, four and a half for 2022. Um, and we are building this to, to 20 million to sell it for 100 million. That's our goal. And so amazing. I, I acknowledge that I'm, I have a lot to learn still. And I, every year your business gets bigger and when your team gets larger, it's, you, you know, you learn more. Um, but when I, when I say kind of, what are you doing today mm-hmm. with your job? For me, it's more, I'm the CEO than I am the entrepreneur. Yeah. Interesting. That's really interesting. One of the things that you just said that I'd love for you to talk about for a minute is the uncertainty that's associated with entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and the fact that to really be successful in the role as entrepreneur, you have to embrace and be comfortable with being uncomfortable or with tremendous uncertainty. Talk about, do you, and and it seems like it's something that perhaps you thrive on. I don't know you that well, (laughs) so I don't know. But as you talk about it, it feels like you kind of love the uncertainty that that challenge really gets you going. Maybe share any tips and perspectives for tools that you use, ways that you uh, work to stay centered Mm -hmm. um, so that the uncertainty doesn't knock you off track. Maybe just talk us through kind of, kind of dealing with that and knowing how to deal with kind of the ebb and flow of uncertainty. No, it's, that's such a a good point. Um, I feel like, again, for me, there's no one decision that makes or breaks a business. Entrepreneurship is a, is a commitment to run the marathon And it is about getting up every day, doing the work every day, putting one foot in front of the other, making the next baby business step, sending that next email, taking the next phone call, making the next one decision, putting out the fire that is there today. There's always a fire. And then going to bed and getting up and doing it again and not quitting and and persevering when it's hard and cutting your losses when you make a mistake and pivoting the ship when you need to. And so five, 10, 15 years later, you turn around and you've built this beautiful business and you don't even remember how you did it, right? So right. The, the uncertainty is, you know, by nature, anyone who leaves a, a structured job for an unknown is a little more fan of, of risk. So entrepreneurs in general are a little bit more comfortable with risk since they're, they're leaving a potential salary or they're, um, you know, putting money that, that that might not go anywhere into their business. So there inherently is that personality connection. Um, but I think you can de-risk by just knowing that there's no, or, or mentally know you're, you're de-risking by, by knowing there's not one thing that's ever going to make or break. And things come up, problems happen, your business breaks at one, five, ten million dollars. And it's about how you handle that moment and, and, and put out that next fire and just sit in the, in the difficulty and persevere. Um, and in terms of how I do that, you know, I go through phases where I do that very well. And then I go through phases when I don't do that very well. And I'm, I'm, I'm pushing myself too hard and not sleeping and overwhelmed, but I've start I've built certain patterns in my day that help me achieve, you know, the, or sort of offset the uncertainty and the risk and, and the, and the extreme work. And that's, uh, but first of all, when I wake up, um, I'm very big on sort of bookends of the day with my children, because in the middle of the day, I might not be able to do pick up after school or whatever that is. And I, I'm not able to be room mom, you know? And so 
I like, you know, getting my kids breakfast, spending time with them in the morning and sitting down with them. And then once my husband takes them off to drop them at school, I'll make a cup of coffee and get back in bed. And before I look at my phone or my emails, I journal or meditate or pray or, you know, read a book or do something that for me to set the tone, my day, check in with myself before I let the world dictate kind of how I'm going to take on the day. Um, and then at the end of the day, I do the opposite where I like to go for a walk and, you know, either between the boys' bedtimes or after they're both asleep, I'll go for a walk or Ted might join me if they're still awake, we have a sitter there and walk along the water and shut off work and kind of prepare for like unwinding. So those are my two sort of moments where I take to myself. Um, I'm, I really believe in leaning on your girlfriends. I have found as mom, um, having good girlfriends who get it, you know, having going have a glass of wine with them, it saves me. Um, carving out time for dates with Ted. And also, again, having that network of peers who get it and being able to call a fellow entrepreneur or a fellow CEO and be like, oh my gosh, I just got my term sheet. It's the, the valuation was less than I thought. What do I do? Well, just vent and or seek, seek help. Um, and so asking for help, leaning on people, and not not isolating yourself, really. Yeah. Are you a big personal goal setter? Do you start the beginning of the year with resolutions and goals and all that business? Or do you sort of leave that for other people? I'm not really big into the into the goal setting per se, um, other than the fact that I, I've never sold a business and I think it's more like a fun bucket list moment where I want to go through the deal discussions and I want to be in a boardroom and I want to sell red clay. Um, and that's just more like a, like a life bucket list, the way I want to climb a mountain in Jackson Hole, Wyoming or whatever it is, Tetons with, you know, I was talking to Lila Rose about that at the sea summit. Um, and yeah, speaking about, you know, your point about sea summit is, is, is accurate, you know, Cherie and Whitney bring wonderful women together. Wonderful women together every year, and I have watched networks build through year-to-year -year attendance in that. And so, if you're a female sort of a creative entrepreneur looking for a network, that's a great place to start for sure. Um, but the in terms of oh, goal setting. So yeah. I just finished Atomic Habits by James Clear and the I and I it, it reinforced to me kind of why you know why I don't love goals and why I instead think more about processes. I always thought it was because of my tech background where it's like okay, you have to build the system that works um to get where you want. It's not about it's not about this lofty goal at the end of the at the end of the road. It is about what am I doing today? to move in the direction that I want to move. And so what we do at Red Clay is, you know, very, we're thinking about, you know, you have this big goal number of 4 million or four and a half million and next year it's going to be 7 million or 8 million. Thinking about breaking that down as an example, month by month, top line sales. Okay. So 4 million is, you know, the year, what January has got to be 200 grand. February has got to be 400 grand. March has got to be 150 grand and, you know, kind of being thoughtful about that top line spend or top line trajectory, and then even drill down into channel. Okay. So we've got direct, we've got restaurants, we've got major grocery account. And so say of the 200,000, 150 is going to come from grocery 
30 grand is going to come from our, our website and 20 grand is going to come from Amazon. And then I'm able to give my team a blueprint. And so my head of e-com looks and says, okay, I'm looking at these big numbers, which overwhelm me. All I have to do is if I focus on 30 grand for January, that means I need to get, call it seven grand a week. That's a thousand dollars a day on the website. So what can she do? What steps can she take running our website to sort of work for that towards that? thousand dollars a day goal and these are all fake numbers but um and then if we find we're not meeting them after the week or two weeks or three weeks let's pivot okay let's readjust the budget let's bring down that goal can we meet it elsewhere or should we bring down our top line revenue and grow a little more slowly um and be thoughtful about our growth you don't want to just grow for growth's sake you, you want it mm -hmm. to be thoughtful and so i think putting those processes and systems into place is more important for me than goal setting it also empowers the team to to just attack a problem more effectively. Yeah, I love that. I really love that. Okay, last question. If you could go back and give maybe 22-year-old Molly a single piece of advice, a life hack, maybe a mantra, mm -hmm. what would you tell her? Oh, gosh. I feel like enjoying the present moment, you know? I think so much of what we do today and what you do at 22 or, or when you're young and you're looking, what's that next thing? Okay. I got into high school. Now I'm going to college. Okay. I got to college. What am I going to, what work, where am I going to go work? You're futurizing and you never really get to sit and be and enjoy the present. And, and there's every moment has such beauty and joy and love. And I think sometimes we as a overperforming, overfunctioning society, tends to constantly be living in either the past or the present or the future and not sit in the, the beauty of the present. And I know I did that at 22. Um, like I want to be a grown up and I want to go do this and I want to go, you know, do all these things that are great in the world. And I in such a hurry. <laughs> exactly. And so for me, I would really remind her that that's all coming and all you have is right now. And what can you do right now that makes you feel good? And that's, spending time with your friends and that's getting outside in nature, going for a walk or having a beautiful meal or a delicious glass of wine or a great cup of coffee. Like what are the things you're savoring in your day um, that make it a good one? Cause that's really all we have right now. Yeah. I love that. I love this conversation. How yeah. fun to get to know you. Thank you. I love getting to know you as well. Hey friend, thanks so much for joining us today for episode 187. To learn a bit more about Molly Feening and Red Clay Hot Sauce Company, be sure to check the show notes for this episode. Remember too, this conversation is part of our collaboration series with Southern Cootery. I've included a link to the Southern Sea in the show notes as well. As always, friend, I'm so happy to have you here, and I hope you found this little investment of your time worthwhile. Until next week, take care. She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.